Jessica Kinsey, Director and Curator at Southern Utah Museum of Art, and this is Observations. Throughout this series, you will learn more about the artists behind the exhibition called Observations, People and Stories Visualized by Stuart Seidman, which is currently on display through July 10th, 2021. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for joining me today. I think this is going to be a great way for our visitors to hear directly from you. Thanks, Jessica, for inviting me. I think it's exciting to be on the premiere podcast of Observations, and uh, we're going to enjoy and have fun and, and enlighten everybody, I hope, and uh, I think it'll be a wonderful listen. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, very conversational. Absolutely. Um, it certainly helps that I've had the pleasure of knowing you and getting to know you over the last couple of years. So I think this will come naturally for us. Great. Uh, so I really want to sort of start at the beginning um, or almost the beginning. Maybe tell me about the experience you had when you were 10 and you drew Jack Dempsey from a photo. Sure. Um, I was about 10 years old. Uh, I was in my room and I was drawing a picture of Jack Dempsey. I, I was copying it from a magazine. Jack Dempsey was the former heavyweight champion of the world, and I, as a boxing enthusiast, was um, just enjoying that experience of copying his image. And as I was drawing that, my dad entered the room, and he said, wow, that's Jack Dempsey. Who drew that? And I said, I did that. And I said, hey, by the way, I've got a picture of Casey Stengel, the old Yankee manager. And he said, wow, I didn't know you could do that. And I said, neither did I. And that was quite the beginning. And from there, things uh, just escalated to the point where in junior high school, I had more of an interest in art. But backing up a little, um, the neighborhood I grew up in was kind of a, I guess, for lack of a better word, a tough neighborhood. Kids had to be reliant on themselves. Uh, we were latchkey kids, our parents worked, so um, we were out and about most of the day other than coming back for dinner or being in school as it happened to be. And um, if you weren't able to take care of yourself in a way, both physically and emotionally, um, you would get picked on. And I was one of the kids that could take care of myself. My dad was a boxer, a fighter, a professional fighter for a while until my mother kind of put the kibosh on that. But at any rate, um, I was a good athlete as well. So at that point in time, if you were a kid that could just draw, the other kids would look at you and say, to use the term they did back then, oh, that's a faggy kind of kid. I mean, all he could do is draw. He's not a good athlete. But I was. I was a good athlete, and they knew it. But I had this other little arrow in my quiver that I could draw pictures and they would ask me, hey Stuart, can you draw a picture of this athlete or that personality for me? And I could do that. And they respected that because it was interesting to them having never really seen any art or being interested in art themselves. This was something that was special for them and of course it was special for me to do it. So that was part of growing up. And as I started to say before, my dad, when he was not working in the factory, he would take his days where he had time to take me to the boat docks or the park where I would sit and draw or ultimately wind up painting. 
And that was really the beginning. So my dad, in a way, was my first great mentor. He recognized something in me, um, and again, he had no interest in art up to that point. I mean, he used to have a saying, if he couldn't drink it or eat it, he had no interest in it. Mm -hmm. So it was something that uh, innately he saw there was something special, and um, he nurtured that in me. Mm -hmm. And I was very appreciative of that uh, later on, you know, at that point in time, I really didn't know. It was just a nice experience to spend with your dad. But I think uh, overall, that was really the first person that recognized something that was um, available to me in a way that um, no one in my family ever appreciated or really was involved in any of the arts. So um, that was the start. And then as I got into junior high, I had more interest in art and started to do more things in art related to art. And then ultimately getting into high school was a completely uh, unique experience in the, in the sense that um, I had an academic program in high school, including the sciences and maths, et cetera. And biology was one of the courses I needed to take. But someone told me that there's a special class that's given in the school by a special teacher named Leon Friend and it sounds and spelled the same way you would spell friend. And he turned out to be a very good friend. And in doing so, they said, Stuart, why don't you apply and try to take that test to get into that classroom? They only take in about 10 kids, and the test is, uh, is, is fairly difficult, but I think based on your background, you can probably do it. So I said, sure. So I did take the test. I was offered the test. I passed the test and hadn't heard anything for a couple of weeks. And one day I was sitting in biology class and the door opens and a woman comes in and uh, walks over to the teacher at the desk and uh, they're whispering to each other and the teacher finally calls out my name. Stuart, can you come up to the front of the desk? I said, oh my God, what did I do now? And um, they were whispered again and uh, she tells, my teacher tells me, the biology teacher tells me, Stuart, you've been accepted into the art squad, as it was called, Mr. Friend's class. And I said, really? Wow. And she said, if you follow this young woman out, she'll take you up there, and that's the end of your biology classes. So I was kind of relieved. I didn't really love biology anyway, <laughs> and that was it. And I still graduated with an academic program. Mm -hmm. But the four years that I was in the art squad with Mr. Friend was the most, uh, I guess, educational experience at that time that I've ever just encountered. I mean, this man was so wonderful and such a mentor to the kids. And again, we grew up in a lower middle class environment. So most of the kids in there came from compromised backgrounds, either economically or socially, whatever the case may be. And he just took us under his wing. It was like having a comfortable arm around your shoulder being around him. That's the kind of only metaphor I can think about at the moment with him. I mean, if you want to look him up, and I think it is worth looking up, it's, you can look up designobserver.com and learn about Mr. Leon Friend. Mm. And he guided us through those four years and then ultimately helped us get in through into colleges because most of us couldn't afford to go to different colleges. 
but he got us into great colleges and um, was responsible for you know just nurturing us through those four years to do what he had to do to make sure we would succeed going forward. And he kept in touch with us. You know, once we were out of his high school class and moved on into the college environment, and he um, he just was in our lives, and we were all so grateful to have him in our lives. I mean, you, if everyone is is lucky enough, and I use the word lucky because I really feel I was lucky to be part of his life, and he was part of mine. That um, if you have somebody like that in your life, it's just a blessing. And without that, I don't know where I would have wound up, whether it would be in the arts or, as my mother used to say, why don't you grow up and be an engineer because you can always get a job, right? right. Or an accountant or mm -hmm. something like that. And that wasn't my suit. I mean, I was just not fit for that. And lucky enough, he found something in me that said, move on and stay with the art because that's what you're going to do well in. And that's what I did. You were able to make a career out I, of art. I, I did. I mean, going forward, um, after college, I uh, got my first job at a large advertising agency. And that was pretty much um, what we were all trained for in advertising design at the time in college. And then um, in that agency experience, um, I found out, and I got a job as an assistant art director. And my boss, so I guess he was working there for about four or five years, and uh, he was in his mid-40s at the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I was working there about five, six months, I guess. And um, finally, one day, um, my boss told me he's not going to be working there any longer. And I said, why not? He said, well, a new creative team has come in from Chicago, and this was in New York where we were working. And he said, they're going to bring in their own people. And I said, what do you mean? You're such a talented guy, and you've been here for so long. He said, Stuart, the business doesn't work that way. New creative teams come in, or agencies lose accounts, and this business is very transitory. I mean, you'll find that out as you go forward. I said, God, that, that doesn't sound like something I want to be involved in for a long period of time, that insecurity. And I did notice lots of people in the agency had that insecure attitude about, am I going to get fired mm. very shortly if right. we lose this account or that account or somebody else comes in and takes somebody else's place? So ultimately, I guess my entrepreneurial ingredients kicked in, and um, I wound up getting myself fired, almost asking them to fire me, because I knew if you didn't get fired and just left, you were gone and nothing out there to support you. But if you did get fired, you would be able to collect unemployment. Mm -hmm. And at that time, unemployment was $75 a week, mm -hmm. which was a fairly big deal. And so they were nice enough to fire me. And while I was fired, I had some contacts at the old Time and Life building at Fortune magazine. And um, the art director there, who I knew from somewhere else, gave me some freelance work. And I used to do illustrations for Fortune magazine, and from there I got other contacts. And ultimately, between running around and doing my assignments for Fortune, I would run to the unemployment office and sign up for my $75 a week a check. Uh -huh. And um, 
In fact, the unemployment woman was so nice. She said, oh, Stuart, I know it's so hard to find a job these days, but please keep trying and let us know how you're doing and, you know, keep at it, which I did. And so for almost six months, I collected that $75 a week and at the same time began building up my freelance work. Mm -hmm. And that provided me with an income. And um, one thing led to another, and I met different kinds of people and expanded my horizons and got more work and opened up a small studio for myself and just began um, creating a career for myself that ultimately led me down a path of, of so many paths in the creative world that it was just a, a wonderful career going forward. We can dig on the we can dig in on the mm -hmm. different aspects of those mm -hmm. paths, but right. they were all wonderful learning experiences. And for a kid that had no real business acumen, you know, growing up, um, I really was getting my master's and doctorate in business experience by dealing with all the heads of major companies that right. I was working with. Right. So that was truly a, a fantastic experience. So thinking back before we sort of transition from advertising to fine art, um, is there something that after all of these years really sticks with you as, as a highlight from those days? A memory, an experience? Um. Well, I think, you know, the fine, I was, well, first of all, the, um, the fine art aspect of it, the agency I worked for was right across the street from MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. And some of the guys during our lunch hour we used to go over there and we could watch films there and you can just, or tour the whole museum. And in those days, Jackson Pollock was being shown, one of the premier abstract expressionists as we know him. But in those days, I would look at a Pollock and just look at it and continue to look at it and say, I don't get it. I'm not quite sure what I'm looking at. I'm seeing a lot of paint and scribbles and things going on, but I'm not sure why this man is so revered in this world of art. And um, we kept discussing it, and most of the people who were with me at that point from the agency were looking at it and kind of had the same feeling. It wasn't representational that we were used to, and we were looking at these abstract expressions of either um, Pollock or de Kooning or Mark Rothko and wondering why all this sudden sensationalism about abstract expressionism. And going forward, years later, I went back and looked at it again. And then suddenly, Eureka, I got it. I said, these guys were breaking ground in places that have never been experienced before. And looking at Pollock and looking at all that energy and that volatile movement of his dripping paint and strokes and, and, and just expression, I said, I understand this. This is like controlled violence. I mean, there's, a, there's such a passion as what he's doing. And then, uh, so I got it. And then looked at the Kooning the same way. And then Rothko, who is much more confined, right. when you look at those big um, squares that he painted and mm -hmm. the color forms that he tried to break through on. 
And I think as we once discussed, Jessica, that the people go to his cathedral. I think it's in North Carolina. It's in uh, Houston, in Texas. Houston, Texas. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. And I don't know if you had this experience, but people sit there and look at them in tears, and they start to cry. Yeah. And that emotion comes through. Yeah. And I think that's so important, whether it's um, representational painting or abstract painting. Yeah. If that emotion connects with the viewer, mm -hmm. then suddenly you've done something that um, is a responsibility. I don't know if it's a responsibility of the artist to do that, but you're making a connection that prior to that, you know, you wondered why. And lo why would people look at something as simple as a Rothko square or rectangle and have tears come out of their eyes? Yeah, yeah. And that's such a heartfelt expression. And um, a lot of people don't understand it. You just look at it and say, oh, I could do that. My kid could do that. Just mm -hmm. do big squares and different mm -hmm. colors. What's the big deal? Mm -hmm. But there is a big deal. Yeah. And until yeah. you understand that and digest it and really... Um, comprehend that to the point what these guys were trying to do um of course most of them could draw to beat the band prior oh, to that sure, you know sure. um they were great uh, they had their great academic backgrounds but they broke out of that and i admired them for that yeah. so it's yeah. you know the experiences you have going forward you could look at a painting when you're 20 years old and then look at that same painting say when you're 40 years old and have a completely different point of view mm -hmm. because of what's taken place in your life that 20 years in between. Mm -hmm. And I think that brings a lot to um, life in general. I mean, we're always changing and evolving and learning and being curious. And I love that word, curious, mm -hmm. because once you stop being curious, I think things just start to get dull. Sure, you know? sure. So I love curious people who ask questions and are, are never satisfied somehow in, in, they can be satisfied in certain aspects of the life, but always being curious and want to learn more. And I, I respect that. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, going from advertising your freelance work, Fortune Magazine, um, to then really spending time, dedicating time to your own practice did that happen organically, or was there sort of this pivotal moment where you um, sort of changed your priorities? How, how did that come about for you? Well, I think it was more organic. I mean, while I was in business, and I had a number of businesses going at the same time with a number of partners at the same time, I think um, when I had time to paint, which wasn't very often at that point because I was traveling the world and uh, responsible for uh, lots of people and um, running, as I said, a bunch of businesses. So I didn't have that much time. And when I did have the time, I would dabble, but not that seriously. You know, just kind of release of um, all the pressures I was dealing with on a daily basis to earn a living. And one day, um, having done very well financially in my businesses, I decided to take a break. And I told one of my partners, I'm gonna step back for a while, I would like them to kinda of run the show, and um, I'm gonna see what I can do in a non-advertising business world for a while for myself. And obviously that would include painting, when I had the time. So now that I've developed and devoted the time, 
I really enjoyed it. It was like opening up new horizons for me, changing the way I thought, changing the way I listened, changing the way I, I just saw things. And that provided me with a whole different aspect of life. I mean, I was always, I was probably in my mid-40s when I decided to do this. And uh, my wife at the time said, how long do you think you're going to do this? I mean, you love the so-called action in the business world and dealing with new ideas and bringing new products to the market and uh, developing new ways of saying and doing things for whatever client you have. So you think this is going to last for you? I said, I don't know. I'm going to keep trying it until it doesn't last. Well, it probably lasted, <coughs> excuse me, about three or four months. And then the calls started coming in from my old partners mm -hmm. and people that wanted me back in business. Mm -hmm. And it drew me back into business. Sure. So I did go back, but I went in on a different aspect, not so much in the old advertising world of developing TV commercials or radio commercials or print ads, but I went back in the product development business and the licensing business of those products that we developed. Mm -hmm. And that was an interesting time for me because I felt that if I can develop a product and sell it to a major company and then license it, that way um, I'd actually be making money when I slept because those products are being sold and I'm making right. a, a royalty right. on that. So that was a, a unique area for me. And um, we started to do well in it in both the uh, toy business and Mattel was a big account for us and the sporting goods business as well. And through that, as I said in the beginning of the show, that um, meeting all these heads of companies was like getting a doctorate for me in mm. business. Mm -hmm. Because I used to sit around conference tables with them and hear their underlings talk about things and the presidents of the companies talk about things. And at that point, I would look around the table and see the people that were just flapping their gums and saying nothing just because they felt they had to impress the people around them. And the people that were quiet but ultimately said something, and what they said had dramatic effect mm -hmm. and really important effect on what we were talking about. So I kind of separated the people that I thought were really beneficial to the project and those that were ancillary to the project. Mm -hmm. And I think all that, uh, again, helped me in my art, and that sounds kind of abstract, how would a, sitting around a conference table, mm -hmm. hearing people talk about a product or a business, help you in your fine art? And I think that helped me focus, and I think that word focus is important. Mm -hmm. And you know, people ask, often ask me, how do you come up with ideas for your art? I mean, you paint and you're fairly prolific, and, I, and initially I used to paint in oil, but then I switched to acrylic because a, they dry quicker and it's easy to paint a few at a time. And I paint rather quickly. Um, uh, it's, it goes down fresher for me when I paint quickly. Sometimes I paint from photographs and uh, will take those as a base and then pivot off that to add to them. And sometimes it's totally from memory. Or sometimes it's from, I listen to a lot of music in my studio, a lot of jazz, all the genres of music, but sometimes if I'm listening to jazz, I'll just pick up the brush and start painting and not know where I'm going mm -hmm. with it. 
And suddenly, uh, you know, an hour or two later, I've got something that, wow, who created that? <laughs> you know, I'm just listening to music and the brush seems to be orchestrating all these little right. gestures and strokes and suddenly there's a painting. Yeah, yeah, you know? you're, you're improvising yeah, I'm, as, I'm part as of, an artist yeah, and I'm a visual. Yeah, and I'm part of that jazz group right. as yeah. they're improvising yeah. and yeah. I'm doing the same thing with a brush totally. or a palette knife. Mm -hmm. And it just comes out, and, and that's the most wonderful thing when you're done, and, and that enjoyable spirit. You're in that moment, within that group, and it's just you, and um, things are happening. And you're not quite sure what's going to happen until it's done, and you look back, step back, and say, wow, I love it. Or, not <laughs> great, but I still did it, you know? Right. And uh, it was, I was part of the group. So it'd be classical or rock and roll or jazz, whatever it might be. I think music is important for me while I'm working. Um, sometimes my wife said it's too loud, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway, I think um, there are so many influences that take place. And as you said, was it a special moment that created you going into fine art or was it organic? And I think it was more organic because my travels brought me ideas and they still do. Meeting different people bring me ideas, they still do. Mm -hmm. Reading books bring me ideas, reading current events and things going on both domestically and internationally, and especially in today's environment. Right. As you'll see in the work in the museum, it, it all brings together something for me to put down on canvas or FedEx envelopes as they might be. So it's just a, um, it's a way of expression. And I think expression, is an individual, individual's kind of way of saying, this is who I am, this is what I represent, and this is my personality. Right. And it all blends into just a, a composite of things you see. And um, as I said, you'll see a lot of different expressions in this exhibit that um, people might say, I didn't realize that the same artist did these FedEx things as who's doing these representational mm -hmm. rendered pieces as right, well. Right. It looks like two different people. But I think sometimes we're not always one person. We mm -hmm. have different personalities, and if you allow them to come out and have a, um, an outlet for that, they will come out. Right. So right. I enjoy that. And it takes me, it, I don't get bored that way. It gives me an opportunity to do a few different things, either at the same time or different times, and express myself in those ways that um, I, I could get easily bored if I did the same thing day in and day out. Mm -hmm. If I painted flowers every day, I, I don't think that would excite me or excite my viewers ultimately. Right, right. So. I do think, um, yeah, you have these pieces that are more abstract and others that are more representational, but the color palette yeah. seems pretty consistent that I think that, um, throughout yeah. the work yeah i think it is i think i express myself with lots of color i think color in today's environment or any environment is a way of showing who you are and having the viewer and ultimately the viewer because those are the ones that are looking at it and if they buy it and hang it in their home or office or wherever they put it becomes something that they pass by every day and there are two ways of looking at art some make art to disturb, as my son would say, or some make art for, for people's pleasure. I think mine is a, uh, a composite of that. 
Some of the images you'll see will question the viewer and say, why would he paint that? Or why, I don't know what's going on. Or some will say, you know, this is what's going on and this is what I see. And oftentimes I'll walk around a display of mine um, and, not, and the people who are, and just try to listen to the comments I hear from viewers looking at the work. And some of them are putting words into the canvas that I never even thought of. And I look at, and I step back and hear them, and I say, you know, they're probably right. I don't know why I was thinking of that, but now mm -hmm. that I look at it, mm -hmm. I see that. Right. Or vice versa. They can say things that I think he did this because, and no, I didn't do that because. <laughs> so I think it's that dichotomy of thought that comes into play when people are looking at work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have a lot of uh, art critics that come up with uh, information about what was in an artist's head when they painted it, whether, you know, they're deceased now or the Van Goghs of the world, and critics today will say, well, that's why he did this or that's why he did that. They're not sure. I mean, they can only, con it's only conjecture based on what they know of the personality and the artist himself. But I think overall, it's just um, what you see and what you enjoy or what you don't enjoy it's a contract between you and the image on the wall and or the sculpture on the platform. But I think it's something that um, is open for discussion. And I think that's what this art is. It's a connection. And if you make that connection and you begin to have this conversation and this discussion, um, I think you've done your job in a way because we want people to be inspired or to question and um, sometimes not always to love it but to look at it either pleasingly or say that disturbs me but I still like to look at it I'm not sure why I did I ask questions of it every time I pass by what was in that guy's head when he painted it mm -hmm. or why is he portraying that person or that thing in that way and I think that's what artists do I mean they try to some shake it up a little more than others and others just um, portray it as a normal person would see it. Sometimes people abstract it, like the Picassos of the world, right. and, and break down what the human eye is normal to see, and then suddenly they don't see that in the same way again, and then they begin to question. Mm -hmm. Why does she have three eyes or two noses or whatever it might be? And he had a reason for it. We all know Picasso could draw like, you know, to beat the band, but at the same time, he wanted to break out of that, and he did something else, and the world knows what he's done. But, I mean, Guernica and things like that, he could portray that in a way that you know the the violence and the bombing that was going on at the time right. of Guernica. And, um, but if you look at some of his other portraits of his uh, lovers and, and friends, um, you look at them and say, I don't get it. She looks like, you know, she's got three heads and things like that. But there's a reason he did that. And until you know the artist and until you know the background, um, you can make fun of it or you can say I don't understand it or maybe I do but and I don't like it or maybe I do and I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. and these are all the things that come into the play of fine art. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a... Uh, a zero-sum game. There's just something about it in each different painting and each different portrayal that says, um, like it, don't like it, 
love it, want to hang it in my home. It makes me feel so good every time I pass by it, or it makes me angry, as I said before. But it's something that connects you to it, and that's yeah. important. Yeah. yeah, evokes something. Yeah, some there's type an of emotion. Reaction. Yeah, yeah, emotion. You know. Yeah, I think um, something that someone once said to me was that the opposite of love isn't hate it's apathy yeah any kind of you know if art can evoke any type of emotion um then there's some success there yeah i i would hope it's stronger than apathy apathy i think is kind of a bridge but i think this generally i mean people will look at something said i hate it i love it quickly you know mm -hmm. and they'll make that instant um gesture but i think it's something uh, if they dig deeper and want to use that time and that energy to really learn and understand why that painting exists, then, um, you know, that's up to the viewer and how much depth they want to go into based on what they see or understand. But I think most art, and, you know, there's art that, um, some of which I understand in today's world, I think you and I discussed this before with these NFTs, these non-fungible tokens. <laughs> I don't really get a lot of it. I mean, maybe I'm too right. old school, but um, there's a lot going on in the art world, not only art and antiques and letters and music that are being sold with these NFTs and uh, cryptocurrencies and things like that. But, you know, I, I guess I can't wrap my arms around that stuff right now, but um, it's something that's going on, whether it continues or it becomes like the tulip craze in Holland many years ago uh, and bursts, I'm not sure. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So Only time will tell. Time will tell. So you sort of um, touched on the things that, places you find inspiration, whether it's, you know, through travel, people, current events, something you've read. Um, but maybe if you could tell us more about who has influenced you or your work, um, I think that would be yeah, helpful sure. to think about. Yeah. Well, growing up in the advertising world at that point, um, there was one particular artist who I uh, really admired, both as the graphic designer and as a painter. Ben Sean is his name. <clears throat> and he's displayed in many museums across the world, has died, I think he died in maybe 20, 30 years ago. Any rate, um, Sean did a lot of work for CBS at that point. William Golden was the art director of CBS, and he developed that big CBS eye that we all recognize and see as their logo. But Sean, beyond a great graphic designer, as I said, was a great fine artist as well. And there was something about his work that just resonated with me. And I just loved his style. And he was a social expressionist. Mm -hmm. Did a lot of work during the WPA program back when Roosevelt created that. Um, and did a lot of murals. And uh, he just had a, a design quality as well as an artistic quality that just got to me. I, I just admired it so much that I kind of replicated it in some of the beginnings of my work, as most artists will do. I mean, they'll follow somebody they like and incorporate that style or that look in their work. I mean, all art is influenced by somebody else's art. Right. And so Sean was someone who I really admired and respected. 
In fact, I tried to get in touch with him, and I ultimately did. I got in touch with his wife at the time, and he was living in New Jersey when I was living in Manhattan. And uh, she actually set up a meeting with me to come out to New Jersey to meet him. And shortly before that, the Ben got sick, and uh, the time of my meeting was canceled, and he died shortly thereafter, so we never got to meet. Mm. But his work lives on in my memory, and um, I just have a, you know, he was the first one that I really admired. But beyond Sean, I think the Matisses of the world, uh, the Moreaus of the world, um, I kind of like even the um, the naive art that's been expressed, um, and Van Gogh as well, of course. Uh, in fact, we uh, we were in uh, my wife and I, Diane, was in um, Holland a couple of years ago, and we went to the Van Gogh Museum, mm-hmm. and we saw Van Gogh's exhibit along with David Hockney, who mm-hmm. was very mm-hmm. influenced by Van Gogh. And Hockney had a, a range of landscapes that he did that were, again, highly influenced by Van Gogh. So those were um, exceptional people and exceptional artists. And Hockney today um, is still at 83 or 84, still producing lots of work mm-hmm. um, and very prolific. And he's using technology as it is. He does a lot on his iPad and converts those and prints those. So I think, um, you know, I respect those. I mean, you know, every artist, I think, has somebody that they look at that influences their work. And if you look at um, Basquiat, Mm -hmm. who is very popular today, I think Basquiat, who kind of created this image as a street urchin or a street kid, um, that was really a false impression. Mm-hmm. Basquiat was, uh, came from a decent home. He went to very fine school, mm-hmm. and he created that image for himself as a street graffiti artist and growing up and living on the streets, which he ultimately wound up doing in a way um, before he got uh, into drugs, I guess. But um, Basquiat, I think, was heavily influenced by um, other artists, and Dubuffet is one of them. If it wasn't for Jean Dubuffet, I think uh, Basquiat uh, wouldn't be Basquiat. I know he frequented a lot of the museums. He looked at art and different artists, but I think uh, Miro and and Clay and and, uh, Dubuffet, I think those are all people that heavily influenced Basquiat's work. If you look at it today, I think you'll see that. And um, so, as I said, many artists uh, always look at other artists and they're influenced by their techniques or their, their, their strokes or whatever they may be, their color patterns. But um, I think uh, mine today, as we talked about, is full of color. I think I just enjoy expressing myself in color. I think people like to look at color. I think they feel good when they see color. And most of the comments I get, they say, Stu, we love your art, but we love your colors. Your colors are so <laughs> right. beautiful, right. you know? And if that's what they're seeing and enjoying, that's sure. okay. Sure. I mean, I don't start out to say, I think I'll make a colorful painting today. Mm-hmm. I think it just evolves that way. Mm-hmm. And um, especially using acrylics, which dry so quickly, you can really uh, use them in an impasto thick technique if you want and create them with palette knives, which I switch on and off from palette knife to brush stroke. 
So I think all that is uh, equates to uh, a final image of something that's, um, if it's colorful, it's colorful. And if it lends itself to the image of whatever it might be and it still winds up colorful, so be it. Right. You know, yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Certainly a lot of color and a lot of texture um, in your work. So let's maybe get from New York to Southern Utah. Uh, how how and when did you end up here? Um, I guess it's about eight nine years ago. We um, we had a house in Sag Harbor on the east end of Long Island and an apartment in Manhattan. And um, we were out on a trip out west on a kind of a, a month and a half long trip out west, visiting various places. And one of the stops on our last leg of the trip was uh, St. George, Utah. Mm -hmm. We had a friend living here who invited us to come for a few days, which we did towards the end of our trip. And um, in San Harbor, we lived on the water. And we had traveled around, you know, the whole Southwest and saw all the rocks and all the mountains and everything else and I was I had enough of all the rocks at that time I said you know what I'm ready to go home and get back on the water <laughs> so we did that uh, we came out and as I said we had a fairly quick trip but uh, got exposed to St. George and then the following year came back again visited again and stayed I guess uh, few weeks longer and one day uh, we were invited um, oh no no let me back up for a moment my niece came out to visit from New York mm. and um, she's about the same age as my wife Diane and came out to visit and she said you know Uncle Stewart I have a friend that told me he has a friend that he thinks lives in Utah. I said, oh really, well Utah's a big place, where is it? She said, let me call him. So she calls up her friend and he said, he's living in a place called St. George. She said, Uncle Stewart, aren't we in St. George? I said, yeah, we're in St. George. <laughs> so she said, really? I said, well, what's your friend's name? So she gets the friend's name and he happens to living in a community that uh, ultimately we wound up living in. But he says, um, Here's my friend's name, and um, call him up. So she said, you know, I think I remember that friend's name. And my niece was a teacher, and she remembered everything from everybody from the time she was in the first grade till the time she <laughs> was in her late 60s. Uh -huh. Anyway, um, so she calls up this friend, and they get on the phone, and sure enough, it's this guy that she was in the sixth grade with. Wow. She remembered him. So he remembered her as well. And, you know, they talked for about an hour. I said she talked. He listened for about an hour. <laughs> and I said, after she hung up, I said, well, why don't you invite your friend over for breakfast tomorrow morning? We can meet him and find out what's going on. And she said, great idea. So she did. And he came over and we all had breakfast. And um, he said, you know, a friend of mine is having a dinner party. And why don't you and your wife come and my niece was leaving that day so she couldn't attend I said well if it's not an intrusion we'd love to come we went to the dinner party and there was about eight couples there and each one was nicer than another mm -hmm. 
And being from New York and mm-hmm. a bit of a skeptic, mm-hmm. I said, I don't know if this is like a cult. I'm not sure what's <laughs> going on here, but all these people are so nice. Uh-huh. And lo and behold, it turned out that way. And one of the people at the dinner party was a realtor. And she said, why don't, if you guys have some time, why don't I show you around? And I said, okay, we have a few days left. So she showed us around. And a couple of days later, we bought a lot. Right. <laughs> and then I Funny said, how that happens. Yeah, and I said, well, now what are we going to do? We have a house, we have an apartment, now we have a lot out here west. So we didn't know, we discussed it. And then uh, the realtor also, while we were still here, she said, now that you have a lot, why don't I introduce you to a builder and an architect, just in case, mm-hmm. you know? So I said, okay. So we met with a few and uh, liked one builder that we liked very much and an architect as well. We told them what our plans would be if in fact we would build a house, we weren't thinking about it. And then we talked about it and said, you know, maybe we ought to build something here and uh, sell the house in Sag Harbor. So ultimately we decided, okay. So we went back east, went back to the house and called up Sotheby's back then and said, you know, we're thinking about selling the house. They said, really? I said, yeah, if we can get the right number. So she said, this is the number I would put on it. And I said, if we can get that, sure, we'll sell it. Well, two days later, it was gone. Right. <laughs> Uh-oh, what do yep. we do now? Yeah. So we called up the builder and the architect said, let's get going. So we did, and uh, through FedEx and um, other means and emails and stuff, we started the uh, building process. But I said, you know, if we're going to build, I think we should be closer to where we're building in the sense so we can be involved with the builder. Mm-hmm rather than being 2,500 miles away. So we called the realtor and asked her if she could rent us a place. So she found us a house that we could rent about a mile and a half from the site that we were building on. And that was great because the builder had lots of questions and would have been difficult to manage 2,500 miles away through email or whatever. So um, that was a good decision. And um, Nine months later, or 10 months later, we had a house, and here yeah. we are. Yeah. So we're loving it. I mean, and then shortly thereafter, we got rid of the apartment as well. So this is home. Yeah. And in fact, we went back east uh, to New York. Um, we were here about, uh, well, we were in our house only about a month, I say, and then went back east because we had some commitments to go back to. And you know, Jessica, it was funny because when we were back east, I said, you know, it's time to go home. And home was St. George, Utah. Yeah. So we really felt we were, you know, we were involved with community there. We made lots of friends, met lots of people, and got involved with sports, uh, pickleball, which I never heard of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we really enjoyed that. And we built a lap pool at our house, so we had swimming to do, so exercises as well. So. It was just a wonderful environment and experience, and we haven't looked back. I mean, it gets hot in St. George in the summer, as you know, but we travel when we can. So we've got the best of both worlds, you know? So it's uh, an environment that I think um, just opens up and expands the thought process because when I look out my window, I have a magnificent landscape. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a beautiful landscape. And I'm not particularly a landscape painter, But um, it inspires me sometimes to push myself to paint landscapes. So, 
So do you miss New York? Do you miss being back east? Yeah, we do. I mean, we go back east every year, more more or less, probably once a year. But I do miss it. I miss the cultural things of going to museums. Mm -hmm. You know, I I love that. Restaurants, of course, theater, of course, friends, of course, family, of course. So those are the things we do miss, but it's connected in a way. And today, especially with the museums, you can have virtual tour. Right, you know? right. Um, in fact, I just witnessed a virtual tour of the Met with uh, Alice Neal's work, I think, mm-hmm. who I love as mm-hmm. well. And I think she was heavily influenced by Ben Sean as well, of mm-hmm. Lucian Freud maybe. But I think, um, yeah, there are things we miss. I think the restaurants are just marvelous back east. You can get anything you want any time of the day. Right. You know, <laughs> so that, that yeah, those things, especially if you grow up that way. Sure. Um, so you miss it. Sure. But you trade off. I mean, there are things out here that you just don't get back east. Yeah. So, you know, it's a compromise. Yeah, and compromise is. is a great word. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think um, it's an experience that, uh, we're, A, we're very happy we made the choice to do this. Mm-hmm and um, healthy enough to enjoy the experience and uh, hopefully keep going and keep enjoying it. Yeah, that's great. It certainly is beautiful out here and clean air and open and um, yeah, maybe maybe not as many places to to eat or very many museums or galleries to go to, but but yeah, it is that trade-off and that that compromise. Um, so kind of thinking about compromise, has living in St. George, working in St. George, has that impacted you as an artist? I think so. I think it, again, you know, talking about Leon Friend and taught us how to listen, how to see, I think how to see is something that, um, you know, I think there's a painting on display here of uh, the Grand Tetons, mm-hmm. um, but especially I think it was I, I was influenced by the sky driving up through Wyoming to Grand Tetons. I think the sky is what you really don't get to see back east as you do out here. Right. The expanse of the sky, the colors of the sky. So I think uh, when we're going to the Grand Tetons, that's what captured my vision. I mean, that big sky formation, and uh, I think that painting shows that. But I think just seeing in a different way. You know, as I said, you know, looking out my window, I see great landscapes, and uh, there are great academic landscape painters out here. I admire their uh, proficiency and their uh, way they can really paint what they see. Um, For me, it's when they say, well, I, I, you know, I see figurative work in your paintings, but how does that influence you being out here? You could be anywhere doing that. I said, I don't think so. Sometimes if I look back at my work that I did when I was back east and sometimes when I look at the new work I completed out here, I think there's a difference. I see a difference. And maybe it's a relaxed way of looking at the figure or a way of portraying the figure, but I do see an influence and a difference Mm -hmm. being out here. And I think just the whole environment. I think if I just step out the door every once in a while and just breathe that fresh air and look around me and then come back in and start painting again, I couldn't do that in New York, you know. Um, And, you know, I don't miss, you know, people say, don't you miss the horns and the sirens and the ambulances and all the noise and the chaotic uh, atmosphere of the city and suddenly you're brought into this place that's so 
quiet and austere, and it's just um, a different environment. I said it is, and it's much more relaxing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you become anesthetized to it when you're living uh-huh. back east because if you didn't, you, I think you'd blow your I, brains yeah, out. Yeah, everyone would go crazy. But I think here, um, even the first few nights, we were lying in bed and sleeping. You didn't hear any <laughs> ambulances or sirens or things like that, yeah. and it's a different experience. Mm-hmm. And it's almost zen-like, mm-hmm. where it puts you into this mood of total tranquility and relaxation. And I think that helps when you make art. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you want that energy that people talk about when you paint. But I think I can get the energy, in a di- conversely, in a different way when I'm painting here by my music environment and things that give me back the things I need to create that energy rather than the noise surrounding me, which I'm trying to discount anyway. Right. You know? So right. it's a different experience. Yeah. 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 So my last question, um, as we kind of come to a close on this first episode, is what made you reach out to me about showing your work and having an exhibit at SUMA? Okay. Um, interesting question. Uh, Diane and I were out here um, viewing a Shakespearean play during the Shakespearean festival and um, walked out of one of the buildings and came upon the museum building. Mm -hmm. And I had never seen it before. Mm -hmm. I said, what's that building? Uh, It's a beautiful building, very contemporary looking. I wonder what that is. And I had a show going on at the St. George Museum at the time. So we walked in, and you weren't here, and there was a young lady at the desk, and I said, uh, is the curator available? Who is it, and he or she? And mm-hmm. she said, no, she mentioned your name. She said, she's not here now, but uh, here's her name, and you can get in touch with her. So I walked around and saw the exhibit at the time, and I said, this is a beautiful space. Boy, would I love to have some work in this building. So shortly thereafter, I think I called, and you answered and said, um, I introduced myself and you as well. And I said, um, I was visiting the museum, and it's a beautiful building, and I'm just wondering if there are any shows coming up or anything that I could participate in. And she said, I know your work, Sue. I said, you do? She said, yeah, I was at the St. George Museum and I saw that show. And I like your work and I just wonder if we can come down and visit your studio. And you came down with a colleague and spent some time in my studio with me and we went over a bunch of things and you blurted out the question, um, would you like to have the show at SUMA? I said, of course I would, I'd be honored. And I said, a group show, collaborative show. She said, oh, how would you like a one-man show? I said, you're kidding. <laughs> you have enough work for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of work at that time. So um, I said, I'd be honored to have a show here. What are you kidding? So she said, well, why don't we plan on something like that? I said, well, I'm ready. So I said, how many pieces would you need? And we discussed that. And she said, uh, here are some dates available going forward. And we had decided on May of last year and Mm -hmm. then COVID hit. Right. And so we decided to put that on hold and decided hopefully by the time May of 2021 comes around, there'll be hopefully a a time element that will allow that to go forward. 
And so that was the case, and so here we are. And um, I'm really excited to see this show, and you're just, the whole place, the whole museum and staff and you mm -hmm. have been so supportive with what you're doing to create this show and to put it up. It's really exciting for me. Yeah. And all the support you've given me. So I think the show will be interesting for the viewers. Um, I think it'll be a composite of our FedEx pieces and our rendered pieces and uh, the different categories that are displayed. And I think it'll be um, just enough there for everyone to enjoy whichever pieces they enjoy looking at. It'll be conversational. Uh, it'll start conversations, good, bad, or indifferent, but at least uh, we'll have that connection made and hope people enjoy the show. Yeah, me too, me too. I, and I hope that this um, series will help people better understand the work that's in the show and, and why the, the people that you feature in the cultural icons or, or um, the places that you featured, that, that we can use this podcast series to, to take that deeper dive into you and your work. Um, and, and yeah, I think obviously you are a storyteller. So I think it's great to use this as an outlet for people to hear directly from you as the artist. So yeah, I hope so. I mean, yeah. lots of people will see my work in the studio say, Stuart, we love your work, but we even love your stories more. So, <laughs> I mean, I have lots of stories. Uh, my wife, Diane, can attest to that. She said, oh, no, I've heard them all already. Mm -hmm. There are probably a few she hasn't, so I'll surprise her. But overall, yes, I think, um, I think it'll be an interesting uh, show for people to see a little different from what they're exposed to out here. Mm -hmm. So I think um, overall, hopefully, it'll be successful. And uh, I thank you again for putting me up. Yeah, absolutely. So that will conclude this episode of Observations. Thank you for joining me as we hear from Stuart about his life um, as an artist and, and better understand what's in the exhibition called Observations, People, and Stories, visualized by Stuart Seidman. For more information about the exhibition, visit suu.edu forward slash SUMA. Until next time, thanks, Stuart. Thank you, Jessica.